0: How will the current pandemic change our democracy? Will we end up being less divided? And what might happen to the 2020 election? Most of us may be absentee voters, but could barriers to full voter participation be put in
2: the way? And is this moment an opportunity for more constructive civic engagement? Somehow I'm worried that it won't be. Or will we still have the name-calling and outrage that plagues our public debate today.
0: The coronavirus pandemic and democracy reform with four podcasters, Jaleka Lantigua-Williams, Cara Ong-Whaley, Mila Atmos, and Lee Drutman.
3: For a long time, we've understood that the economy is rigged and that our politics is broken. And there was a sense that we couldn't do anything about it. But I think we now realize that the stakes are too high not to do anything about it. And this is not a moment for staying silent.
1: For quite some time, our politics has been nationalized. And this could be a moment where responses are really happening at the state and local level um, to denationalize politics.
0: Our show is about fixes.
1: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How
0: do we we
2: fix fix it? it?
3: How do we
0: fix it?
2: How Do We Fix It? is now part of the Democracy Group, a new network of 11 podcasts about civic engagement and democracy reform. And Richard, you've been very involved with the group and you hosted a special episode for them on how the pandemic is changing the debate over political reform. Tell me a little bit about the four podcasters you brought together for this particular episode.
0: The first of the four, Jim, is Juleka Lantigua-Williams, who is the host of the award-winning podcast 70 Million, which is about the impact of prisons and jails on the lives of local people, as well as the impact of the criminal justice system. Kara Ong-Whaley is associate director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. She's the host of. Democracy Matters. Lee Drutman is an author, researcher, and a guest on a recent episode of How Do We Fix It? His newest book is Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. Lee is the co-host of the podcast Politics in Question. And Mila Atmos also joins us. She's a columnist and host of Future Hindsight, a podcast on civic engagement.
2: So the podcast was produced for the Democracy Group, but here you've taken some pretty in-depth excerpts from that. And we'll be back to discuss those after the show.
0: Yeah, and maybe even debate them too. Here we go. Democracy is very much a group activity. Inside, we come together to debate, to discuss, do the work of government and make laws. Outside, at least sometimes, we protest and hold rallies. But much of this is not possible right now. Social distancing presents a tremendous challenge to the work of people who want to reform democracy. In this episode we're going to look at the barriers and the opportunities as we deal with the COVID pandemic. I'm Richard Davies, co-host of the weekly Solutions Journalism podcast, How Do We Fix It? And joining me are four other podcasters and colleagues in the Democracy Group podcasting network. First, Kara, as the associate director of the James Madison University for Civic Engagement, uh, you're very much involved in this whole question of democracy reform. So how do you see this strange moment that we find ourselves in?
1: Thank you so much. You know, certainly this is going to be a defining or key inflection point uh, in our democracy and and in our society. You know, we already knew before this crisis that we had high levels of socioeconomic um, and racial inequalities in our society. And I'm concerned about how this will exacerbate those inequalities, and who has access to policy and decision-making processes. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, we are, we are really trying to think about is how do we, in a time of physical distancing, how do we ensure that we can be more inclusive of voices who traditionally have not been at the table um, and, and may at this time be, be struggling even more um, uh, in, terms of, in terms of access?
0: This is a pretty broad question. So, anybody else want to jump in?
4: Sure. I'm happy to chime in. It's something that, as someone who's been working in criminal justice reform for over four years, I think about a lot, um, which is about how incomplete our democracy is because we are really comfortable with having, you know, two million plus citizens and residents and people who would be contributing to our democracy, just completely away, disenfranchised, unable to vote, even when they do return, they're still denied the right to participate fully in our democracy through the vote. And so I feel like COVID, the pandemic, the fact that we have had to rethink what it means to still be active in our democracy making um, has really brought to bear not just the inequities and the inequalities, but also the necessity to have a much more active uh, sense of democracy as a verb, democracy as an, as an action that we can all be part of.
0: Lee Dropman, in your recent article, you talk about how hyperpartisanship partisanship has made the coordination of a national response to the COVID pandemic so much more difficult.
3: Well, if you look at the fights that Trump has been having with the Democratic governors, uh, in a normal time, you would expect the governors and the president to work together and for the country, frankly, to come together and to unify. But this moment has, I think, exacerbated a lot of the divisions that are already uh, tearing our politics apart. I think the uh, the uh, fact that this virus has hit urban areas much harder than rural areas so far has has played dangerously on the urban-rural divide, uh, which is also our partisan divide. And you know, I think the uh, partisan divide over trust in expertise and in, in science uh, ha- has made this a lot worse than it certainly needed to be. Hyperpartisanship, you know, is bad for our politics in many ways, but in this moment, it does very much feel like it has uh, made things much worse. And you know, I wrote a book that came out earlier this year, in which I talked about uh, the two-party doom loop of escalating hyper-partisanship. And at the time, I thought it was just a, a metaphor, but now I, I worry that it might be all too realistic of a description.
0: Mila, how do you see this, this crisis right now?
5: It's really showing where the most severe cracks are. And by that, I mean people who are going to work every day to still stock shelves or still do delivery of food where some people can shelter at home. Uh, You know, people like us, we can work from home. But for many people, there is no choice. I saw a picture of rush hour in New York City and the subway was totally
0: full. So this whole crisis is, is affecting uh, many people in, in much more dramatic ways than others, especially those who have to go to work and, and are also in uh, crowded cities and use public transportation.
5: Right, 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 exactly. And I think this is really you know, one of the things where I feel like we're starting to understand more how much we rely on them to work. In these jobs. And I think a lot of people would normally say, oh, you know, we don't need to pay them $15 an hour or whatever it is. But now, actually, we should think about giving them hazard pay, because if anybody is at the front line, it's these people who have to be out and about and are in contact with people every day, all day.
0: So that threatens Lee Drutman to make uh, our partisan political environment even more divided.
3: Yeah, I, I certainly uh, do. Do fear that you know? I think thinking about the broad scope of history, these moments of crisis are ultimately moments of reckoning when it's clear that the old ways were flawed, like a you know, a rotten door that the, the coronavirus has just kicked in. But we need a new door to replace it. So there is this moment of opportunity uh, to. Kind of do some big rethinking, and I think that's why these conversations are so important and essential to be having. And yet, you know, in the short term, I I, I feel very pessimistic. It's you know not just uh, you know the the polarization, uh, but it's also the fighting over voting. Uh, We are going to have an incredibly contested November election as President Trump has decided that voting by mail is somehow a bad thing, even though he himself votes by mail. And so states are going to be scrambling to to ramp up their ability to handle a large number of uh, absentee ballots. Uh, There will be all kinds of inequities in that. Uh, the, The results could be disputed.
0: Kara, this this voting crisis, this threat to the election of 2020, is that something you're dealing with on your podcast Democracy Matters?
1: Yes, there are a lot of questions and I think this this also goes back to the hyperpartisan nature of our political context because now when we talk about vote by mail, for example, we're already seeing that just saying those words has now uh, a partisan context and a partisan meaning, right? There's already been um, the politicization um, uh, and and of this question. Um, I think we're also going to need to talk about questions about how we are going to get the right information to people. Um, you know, I work most directly with students, which um, are a traditionally uh, low turnout population, um, and students also. Tend to be privileged, at least most of them do, in the sense that they have a choice to vote either where they go to school um, or wherever their, quote unquote, permanent address may be. Right. So there's there's already, you know, some disparities there in terms of trying to get them the correct information, um, uh, correct technical information. And then we also have, you know, the the motive, you know, mo- we have to overcome motivational barriers to voting um, because they don't necessarily see themselves represented in the process. But we're seeing a lot more challenges to ensuring full participation.
0: Uh, Jaleika's podcast, 70 Million, I- is all about what's broken inside our prison and criminal justice system here in the U.S. Tell us, Jaleika, what's changed as a result of, of COVID-19?
4: A few things have changed. Um, I think that, unfortunately, COVID has really put the spotlight on on the overall risk as a society that we take. And because this has to do with our health, right? With our vitality, with our, literally with our lives, it has really put it in stark perspective how warehousing people in confined environments, in poor living conditions, with, you know, lacking medical attention, lacking proper nutrition, That now poses a real risk to the rest of us, that our incarceration systems from the local and county jails to the state jails to the federal jails is now posing a massive uh, public health risk to the rest of us. We're also looking at the cost, right? Because now we're comparing, you know, what is the cost of housing someone in a federal prison? It's over $100,000, right, versus the cost of the student loans, you know, versus the cost of a public state university, versus the cost of a training program. And so now there are people looking at the numbers and saying, this doesn't make fiscal sense for us to be maintaining this system. And then when we sort of like pin it down to, for example, the epicenter of the epidemic, which is New York City, we we'll look at the example of Rikers Island, right? So Rikers Island is a notorious jail. It's, you know, one of the worst places to be housed when you are awaiting trial. Now, there are people now at Rikers Island who contracted COVID by merely being unable to pay for bail, to go back home and await their trial. That is unconscionable on one level, but it, again, it exacerbates the danger to the public health.
0: Jaleika, are there examples of prison systems or jail systems that have been worse or, or perhaps better than others in regard to uh, the, the, the pandemic outbreak?
4: We have seen that counties have said, "Okay, we're going to send you back home. You don't have to await trial. You don't have to make bail. Go back home because you're otherwise we're going to put you basically in at risk for getting this. And so there hasn't been even any national guidance coming from the administration about how we can mitigate the potential exposure that people can have from uh, the, the packing of, of populations in, in jails and, and prisons.
0: Another group where uh, COVID can have catastrophic consequences are people who live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Mila, on future hindsight, you've been speaking with experts who are working to help people at the greatest risk. What are they seeing?
5: So what they're seeing is that um, a lot of people are unbanked. I think the people who live paycheck to paycheck, many of them don't even have a bank account or many of them did not file taxes in 2018 because they made so little money. Uh, So I know that uh, if you did file in 2018, probably you have already received your $1,200 check from the government. But that's basically, you know, a forward rebate for your taxes, Uh, it's not actually, I don't want to say handout, but it's not actually something that's just given to you. And really what we need is we need a giant bailout. Even uh, Barry Dillard said, you know, everybody just needs a bailout and everybody needs to be given the money. One of the ideas that Stephen Pimper had at the University of New Hampshire is to help people bank through the post office. And that used to be a thing in the 50s and 60s. And we could bring that back. And this way, you could much easier with people who are unbanked, who are now actually most of the time at risk because they bank with uh, payday lenders, you know, who cash their checks for a fee. Uh, And then you could drop money to them immediately, you know, in a way that you could get your rebate, your future rebates, Right now, for people who do have bank accounts,
0: those are two really constructive suggestions. Uh, we're talking about Democracy in the Time of COVID-19, a podcast series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Richard Davies from the Solutions Podcast, How Do We Fix It? I'm joined by Mila Atmos of, of Future Hindsight, Jaleika Lantigua-Williams from 70 Million, Kara ong from Democracy Matters, and Lee Drupman from the podcast Politics in Question. Let me throw out a question and see who answers it, and that is, in what ways could this pandemic be an opportunity as well as a disaster?
3: There's a sense after a crisis that we can't go on the way that we've been going on, and I think it does create a a tremendous opportunity, but a lot of that opportunity depends on what we do. There are these brief windows in in politics in which things seem uncertain and the range of possibilities can suddenly expand. And it does feel like we are about to enter into one of those moments. I think for a long time, we've understood that the economy is rigged and unfair, uh, but there was a sense that we couldn't do anything about it. And for a long time, we've understood that our politics is broken. And there was a sense that we couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but I think we now realize that the stakes are too high not to do anything about it. And th- th- this is a-, a moment in which a lot of people are just tremendously engaged in what's happening in the world around them because everybody realizes that what happens beyond their lives affects their lives. And this is not a moment for staying silent.
4: Yeah, I'd like to add to that. This is Juleika from 70 Million. Um, and it's, it's for me, it's really clear that there was a whole group of American citizens who have known for decades, generations in some cases, And who have lived through the inequalities, but who have never had the power or the position to be able to do something about them. And so we have an opportunity here to bring people to the table and to leadership positions who have lived through the inequalities, who have found ways through just sheer resiliency to make do and to not only strive but thrive through poverty, through unequal educational systems, through, you know, a crime bill that decimated millions of families in the United States. So I think that we need to take a hard look around and find people who have become experts in solving the problems that have come to light. Where I think we might become really wasteful is in our tendency to intellectualize things. And so I'm really scared about a lot of millions of dollars being spent on studies and research and trying to understand the psychological, emotional impact. All of that is really, really important, but it's not, it doesn't rank in my in my opinion compared to restoring people. And making them whole again and making sure that they get past COVID and land in a better place.
0: Let me ask Kara to respond. Uh, you're with the James Madison University Center for Civic Engagement. Uh, how do you react to what Jaleika said?
1: I completely agree with, with much of what Jaleika said. And I was also going to provide another perspective you know, for for quite some time, our politics has been nationalized. And this could be a moment where responses are really happening at the state and local level um, to denationalize politics. This is an opportunity to bring local leaders into that decision-making process um, and, and to include communities who have traditionally been left out. We do have good evidence that when we look at local politics, public opinion on, on, a, on a number of issues aren't as polarized as they are at the national level. You know, I see this as an opportunity to depoliticize some of those questions as well as bringing others into the conversations and, and into decision-making positions.
0: Mila Atmos of Future Hindsight, how do you see the, the, the potential for opportunities from this crisis?
5: Well, there's so many opportunities, right? I think one of the things that um, we really have an opportunity with, which I was really surprised by, is, uh, is in housing the homeless, because that is an extremely vulnerable population that we have not paid attention to at all. But in the last stimulus bill in the CARES Act, there was $4 billion allotted to housing the homeless, whereas just, you know, a few months ago, we were rounding them up and imprisoning them, depending on where you live. So I think that's really important. And I think if you can make strides in having more funding for housing, that would be terrific.
0: So we are talking about the impact of COVID on civic engagement um, and political change. And I just wondered, whether there's anything from this crisis, any of you, that surprised you?
4: Yeah, I feel like, and of course, I didn't know this until it happened. I feel like I actually had a level of immigrant naivete about the power of my adopted country. I I came to the States when I was 10 with my parents seeking the American dream, and I have... To, to every extent possible, attain that. I have a world-class education. I own my own business. I live a middle-class existence. And so I feel like uh, the, the notion that you can make it in the U.S. if you work as hard, I really, really uh, shape who I am, except up until the point that I saw nurses who couldn't have protective equipment, except until the point that I heard from my friends who couldn't go bury their their siblings or their uncles or their parents except until the point where people are being found dead in apartments because in my home city of New York where I grew up it has completely shattered my sense of the not even the might but the will of the United States to be a great nation. And that to me has been completely heartbreaking because I bought into it. I bought into it and I worked through college, through grad school, you know, like did all of the things that made all of the sacrifices that you're supposed to make so that then you come out on the other side with a kind of existence that strengthens the country, right? And this has completely upended my sense of that
0: ideal. That's it's a very profound response. Anyone else want to add to that?
4: This is Mila. I think
5: what was really surprising to me is the sheer incompetence of the government, because I thought, you know, Trump really, really wants to win re-election. And I thought that because of it, he would mount a government response that is so forceful and so good that people would have no choice but to elect him again. And it would be one of those things where it was a side effect, <laughs> you know, a side effect of him wanting to win the election, that he would have a proper response. And I, it's incredibly infuriating um, and sad. And everything that Jaleka is saying is so true. There are so many stories. And I have to say that as an Asian-American, to now live in an environment where Asian Americans are being attacked because everybody thinks that we're Chinese and we're not obviously all Chinese. Um, It's uh, it's really scary. I didn't think I was going to see this kind of time in my life.
0: That was Mila Atmos from Future Hindsight. We also heard from Kara Ong-Whaley, who is the host of the podcast Democracy Matters, Lee Dropman from Politics in Question, and Juleka Lantigua-Williams, host of 70 Million, podcast about jails, prisons, and the criminal justice system. And now, our conversation.
2: Well, Richard, first of all, I thought it was a really interesting uh, roundup of views. There wasn't a lot of ideological diversity in the group, but a lot of smart thinking. and, And I think in a strange way, a certain amount of optimism, even in these dark times.
0: I'm struck by how raw the emotions are, you know, Jim. The, the pandemic is still shocking in its scope and impact, and we're still finding out how COVID might affect society in, in many different ways. And this debate over inequality, I think, is, is very much louder. And it's not at all clear whether the result will be true reform or, or perhaps chaos.
2: I don't think it's going to be chaos, but I think these conversations are long overdue. You know, the disparities we're seeing in outcomes um, because of so- socioeconomic conditions are really a wake up call. And a number of interesting points came out. One was the problems of the unbanked. You know, we're trying to get all this money out in a hurry. Well, how do you get money to people who don't have bank accounts? It's it's not just incompetence. It's actually hard to do. The idea of setting it up in post offices, this show may be the first time I've heard the word U.S. Postal Service and efficiency used in the same sentence. I, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but I, I'm not sure it's something that's going to be as easy as flipping a light switch. And it may not be the only way to approach that problem.
0: Yeah. Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations predicts the pandemic will not change the basic direction of history so much as to accelerate it. And perhaps that could also happen in politics, although I sure hope not, because I think what's really needed is uh, uh, far less uh, partisanship than we've had in the past, and also a greater attention to the needs of people who've been left out. the system.
2: The idea came up that we need to denationalize our politics. And this has come up before on on how do we fix it. There's so much that can happen at a, a local or state level. And the voices I'm hearing on this issue, they go both ways. Sometimes they say, We want the federal government to do everything. And then they say, oh, my gosh, you know, it's so much better when people who actually know conditions on the ground are in charge. We need some combination of a competent federal government, which unfortunately we often don't have today, but also some respect for local variation. Not every state needs to respond to this um, in the same way. And it's not helpful when people look at the country and they divide it into sort of red states and blue states and they kind of pick teams and they're almost rooting for the other team to fail. And I think that's un-American. And I think we should be looking for solutions together. We shouldn't be judging people first by what party they're in.
0: Right. And and. One hopeful note to end with, perhaps, is that great crises can change the rules of the game and our attitudes about what is possible in our politics much more quickly than we might expect.
2: Yeah, and I like that idea that you know a, a crisis can open a window of opportunity. I would have added – that those ideas don't all have to be ideas from the left. You know, there's an awful lot that we're learning right now about the way well-intentioned regulations have actually crippled us in our response. You know, it was so hard to get a a lot of PPPs out there because of very well-intentioned FDA rules that they were slow to relax or when, you know, distilleries started trying to make their own alcohol-based hand sanitizers, they were shut down for a while by the FDA. Again, rules that made sense in sort of peacetime that didn't make sense in this kind of pandemic war time. So there's a lot that maybe we can do including loosening up rules that make it hard for poor people, marginalized people, immigrants to get jobs and start businesses. So I think the right and the left, maybe they should stop fighting so much and come together. And they might agree on more than they think about where, maybe we need new rules in some areas, but maybe we should be relaxing some regulations in other areas.
0: Jim, you may be shocked by this, but I'm going to leave the final word to you.
2: That never happens. (laughs) It's how do we fix it? I'm
0: Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. Check out what we can do to make your podcast sound better at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra.